All right, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray, gracious Heavenly Father? It is you who is the maker of all things. But Father, it is also you who is the creator of the plan of redemption. Because you're a God who is loving, and you desire not for your people to wallow and die in their sins, you have sent us Christ the Son to accomplish our salvation to live in perfect righteousness, to love the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and love his neighbor as himself, to speak the truth of who God is, for he is God in flesh. Father, and you have also given us your spirit who seals the redemption and is the deposit, deposit knowing that when you return, you will call all of your people to yourself. Those who have died will be raised whole and complete with glorified bodies that are perfectly able to do your will formed and fashioned in the likeness of Christ. Father, but we confess so often we think we have to do more. That somehow... The work of redemption of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was not sufficient. We need to add to it. But, Father, anything we add to augment, change, or invest into the work of redemption, we ruin it. Because we, be, we trust in what we can do, not what Christ has done. Father, we come to you now and on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are sick. Father, we lift up our sister Suki. Father, in the final hours and days of her life, Father, we thank you for a life well lived, who has followed Jesus all the days of her life. Lord, and we thank you for the example of her hope of the gospel that says when she closes her eyes in death, she will open them to see her Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the Currys this morning as they continue to battle cancer and the fatigue and the weariness. But Father, in the midst of the struggle and the pain, I pray that the sweetness of Christ would be felt. Though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they will fear no evil because 
Though they may not see it, they hear the voice of Jesus. And they feel the presence of the shepherd by his rod and staff that comfort them. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working and knowing and being a part of this congregation and this flock as we join together in this journey. And I pray that we would encourage one another and love one another and protect one another as we, uh, as long as you see fit to keep us together along this path that leads to glory. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How many times have you had a conversation with somebody about their life and they have revealed to you something before that you didn't know? Maybe a, an experience that they had, maybe a problem they have, maybe a bias, maybe a, a hidden identity about them that otherwise you did not know. And that little bit of information or little bit of knowledge puts everything to the pieces and instantly they fall together and you're like, that makes all the sense in the world. If I had only known that, that explains your behavior, your choices, the things that you do, the things that you don't do. And immediately it, you would put together and say, obviously it makes sense. But the reason that we don't do that and don't recognize that all the time and there's questions and missing pieces is because often we have false expectations that, and, and selfish ambitions that blind us towards reality and, and, uh, uh, and, and they do not allow us to see the significance of the moment. Why couldn't we see it before? Often we can't see the obvious because our expectations make us oblivious to the truth. I believe this was the case that happened with the crowds nearly 2,000 years ago on that Palm Sunday in what we call the triumphant entry. When Jesus, mounted on a donkey, came into Jerusalem, the crowds couldn't see the truth about who Jesus was because the reality is they didn't want to see the truth. They wanted to see their expectations and their ambitions fulfilled that day. See, the false expectations of the crowds blinded them to the reality of who Jesus was and why he was here. And far too often, we are the same way. We can't see because we don't want to see. The triumphal entry, though, is not about, as we look at it, about donkeys and palm branches and throwing our jackets and our coats on the ground. The, the triumphal entry is about Jesus. 
and all those accoutrements and palms and, and even celebrations that were going on distract us and we, we don't see who we need to see. And that's Jesus. We see somebody else. We see the Jesus that we want to see, not the Jesus that we need to see. So what Matthew does in his book that he brings us together in some 20-something chapters, he is forcing us to, to answer the question, who is this? Who is this? And each one of us, as we've read this already, um, and as we go in this sermon, we have to answer this question, who is Jesus? Where did he come from? Where is he going? What is he about to do? He is leading us to the realization that we must receive Jesus for who he is, not what we want him to be. We must receive Jesus for who he is, not what we want him to be. As we read through Jesus, we see this, this passage in Matthew 21. We see Jesus is the promised king, the humble king, and the disappointing king. The humble king, or excuse me, the promised king, the humbled king, and the disappointing king. Jesus was about to go and to be lifted up as king in Jerusalem. But he wasn't the type of king anyone expected, and quite frankly, at the time, it really wasn't the king that they wanted. But it was the king that had been promised to them. It was the king that they needed. And be able, before we delve deep into the passage, we must actually come back on a widescreen lens to see the big picture of what Matthew is going to do, especially in Matthew chapter 21, but actually throughout the whole book of Matthew, uh, and to be able to see that this journey that Matthew is leading us on through the pages of Scripture, that journey begins in oh, the little town of Bethlehem. And it leads us unexpectedly into exile down in Egypt. And eventually, when the threat to Jesus' life uh, settles off, he, it enters in a little backwater town in Israel known as Nazareth. That path begins to wind through places like Magadan and, and Caesarea Philippi, to Capernaum and Gesenaret, to Tyre and Sidon and to Jer Judea, and then to Jericho where we find Jesus coming from. And now, for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. And that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. Because as Scott read to us this morning in our call to worship, it is Jerusalem that is the great city of God. Psalm 48, 1 and 2 that was often read and quoted in celebration. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion is the far north, the city of the great king. Now, if you know anything about Matthew, you know that the theme of Matthew is Christ the king. 
And if you can now see, and if you were to make a movie and you would have dramatic music in the background, and then you would see this beautiful sunset or sunrise, and then you'd see a speck in the distance start to grow bigger, and you would see here comes the king as he looks down over his city. Jesus Christ, the king, is coming to Jerusalem. This is what we have been waiting for 20 chapters to read. This king who was uh, adored by Magi where the star announced his birth and the angel said the king of the Jews who will come to rescue his people is now coming into his city. And you can hear the dramatic music playing as now the widescreen begins to zoom in on Christ Jesus, the great king. Over the course of the next week, the pace will be breakneck, where it has taken 20 chapters to cover three years. Now the remaining chapters will only cover a few days as you see Jesus do incredible things in the city of the great king. Jesus will ride into the city on a donkey, praised by the crowds and palm branches and coats will be laid at his feet as he rides. He will go into the temple and he will cleanse it of the robbers and the scoundrels who oppress the people and take advantage of the sincere people worshiping their God. He will condemn the self-righteousness of the religious leaders and he will institute a radically Christ-centered understanding of the Passover meal. He will be betrayed by one of his own with a kiss. He will be denied by another and abandoned by the rest of his disciples. He would be falsely accused and unjustly prosecuted by the authorities. He would be flogged and humiliated, shamed, hung naked on a cross, and crucified alongside two common criminals in a horrific and inhumane death. But that's not the end of the story. He would rise triumphantly from the grave and announce by angels, He is not here. He has risen. Every action, every word, every step carefully choreographed by the Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundations of the earth that was foreordained and foretold and foreshadowed in the pages of Scripture. This was the beginning of the end. The king was coming into his city. Jesus' hour that he had continually said, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. His hour had finally come. And as Mark, the other gospel, declares, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And now the mission for which he came of redemption to give his life as a ransom for many. The promised king has come into his city. Jesus is about to set into motion a plan of a covenant that would be sealed with his own blood and declared. And the promise of the covenant would be this. That all who trust in the righteous life 
and the atoning sacrifice, sacrificial death of Jesus would have peace with God. Not by what they do, but by what Christ has done. But this covenant, this promise of this gospel, this new covenant has Christ as the central. It has him as prophet and priest and king. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the great prophet who stands before God's people and declares the truth of God. For when you hear and you read the voices of the voice and the words of Jesus, you are hearing the very words of God, for he is the word. He is God made flesh. And when you that Jesus is prophet and Jesus is priest, Jesus is the great high priest who stands before God on behalf of his people, but he doesn't offer the blood of goats and lambs. Time and time again, it is he offers his own perfect sacrifice that he has, has laid down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only is Jesus prophet and Jesus priest, but Jesus is king. Jesus is the great king who rules over all creation. All things in heaven and earth are subjected to him because he would rise again full of power and authority. And his people who are united him to him by faith are safe because Christ is their king. We even see, and I can't go into great detail this week, in Matthew chapter 21, you see him as prophet as he curses the fig tree for its unfruitfulness. He is the priest as he goes into the temple that has been corrupted and he kicks out the scoundrels and the robbers who are exploiting the people and he purifies it as a great king and as a, prof, a priest. And now he is the king that we see who is entering his city, Christ the king is riding on a donkey. This is the promised prophet, priest, and king that has come to redeem his people from their sin. He is the Lion of Judah who will receive the obedience of the nations. He is the offspring of David who, was in, who will be enthroned on his father's throne forever. He is the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is the prophet who was promised to Mo Moses who will speak the very words of God and we must listen to him. Christ, Jesus Christ, the promised priest and promised prophet and promised king has finally come to the city to save his people. But Ocean Park, we would be remiss if we fail to see the significance of Jesus because of the pageantry of Palm Sunday, because of the palm branches, because of the shouts of Hosanna, because of the great picture, and we miss the significance of Jesus the King, the promised prophet, priest, and king coming into the great city of our God. Jesus did not come to teach beatitudes in parables. He did not come to perform miracles and to heal people, though he did all of those things and though all of those things were good. They were leading up to the crescendo that we see at the cross. 
Because it was at the cross, the act of the great promised king in accomplishing redemption that the parables and the teaching and the healing and, and the casting out the demons draws its significance because Jesus has defeated his enemy and he reigns victorious because the promised work of redemption has come. That very promise when sin had for the first time stained our world and brought thorns and thistles and pain and brokenness, that the promise of Jesus would come from the woman. As God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the struggle between the enemies of God and the descendants of man, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There would be one that would come, the offspring of the woman that would come and fulfill the, the um, task of defeating the enemies of God, and that king is coming in the, over the horizon, and you can see him. He is riding on a donkey. Christ the king who would defeat sin and death and reign eternally, is now coming. And the events of Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday will all find their significance in the promise in who Christ is and what he has done. That can only happen with a promised king who is prophet and who is priest and who is king. Oh, the words we sang this morning, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransomed us. Ocean Park, if you are to see Christ for who he is and not what, he, what, not what you want him to be. You must see Christ as both prophet and priest and king, whose victory was promised in the garden, begun in Jerusalem that Sunday, accomplished on Good Friday, and celebrated and declared victorious on Resurrection Sunday. It is only the promised king who is prophet, priest, and king. And seeing that and acknowledges that we are able to receive Jesus for who he is and not what we want him to be. As the story continues and as we see Jesus draw closer in this, this uh, panoramic that closed, the, the director, move, director Matthew moves the lens forward and you begin to see Jesus seated on a donkey. And if you think about it, and if you go through the concordance of your mind, how many times in scriptures have you ever heard of Jesus riding an animal? One time, and that's this. He, like everybody else, walked everywhere. They walked and they walked and they walked. And so when Jesus goes out of his way to procure a donkey to ride into the city, this is significant. And we, as a good reader of good literature, say the author is waving a red flag right now saying, hey, look at me, I'm important. 
Notice in verse 2, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them to you at once. Jesus is going out of his way to ride the short distance down the hill to Jerusalem in the midst of the, the, the hustle and bustle of Passover, and that is significant. And the question is, why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus riding a donkey? Now the author says, when you go, that sends the disciples and go to the place where this donkey is, we think probably this is a miracle. Jesus could see the donkey from a distance because he's God. Most likely, Jesus has gone ahead and he has made arrangements to get the donkey because Jesus is embracing a symbolic, significant act that is about to happen. But Matthew records this conversation Jesus has, and he says, the Lord needs it. Now, this is a double entendre that it has significant meaning as we read it. The first is the um, people that would have challenged the disciples and said, why are you taking that donkey? That doesn't belong to you. They would say the Lord needs it, and they would think, oh, the donkey's owner needs the donkey, and so they can go, and they'll let, they'll let the disciples go. But Matthew, as he's writing, and you have to remember, Matthew is putting a, a, a mosaic before us. And he's taking all those little tiny tiles that are different textures and different colors and different shades, and he's arranging them together. And he puts this little phrase in here, the Lord needs it. And then immediately to the readers you hear, the Lord God is working and using this donkey because he is sovereign over heaven and earth. He is the great king, and he is about to accomplish something. There is nothing that is insignificant in the plan and sovereignty of our God. The Lord needs it. He needed that donkey back in Balaam's time, like our children you heard before, who talked to a stubborn, belligerent prophet. And now a donkey once again is coming into this mosaic of the pattern of redemption and is playing a significant, integral part of what the Lord is about to do. Jesus is about to use this donkey and its colt to ride into Jerusalem and boldly declare the identity and the nature of his kingdom. Jesus is about to show through this donkey that he is the rightful heir of, the, of David's city. There are two main um, prophecies or two main Old Testament things that come through. We know Zechariah 9, we read that. But I think another one that is just painfully obvious uh, as you begin to read and study the Old Testament is Jesus is now riding into Jerusalem the same way that Solomon rode into Jerusalem. In 1 Kings chapter 3, that talks about how the, um, David had promised that Solomon would be king. 
And there was a challenge because Solomon was not his firstborn. And there was a, a rival, and now there was another son of David who declared himself king. But David said, told Bathsheba, he said, Solomon himself will be the king. And so what, and it says, King David swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversary, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. So what they did is they got together Solomon and the king's men, and it says, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, on my own donkey and bring him down to Gihon, then blow the trumpet and say, Long live Lord King Solomon, and you shall come unto after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, so he shall be king in my place. So as Jesus is coming over this, you'll often hear um, Jesus is riding a donkey, and that's kind of funny because normally kings ride horses. And that is very true. But what Matthew is trying to do is showing you the significance that Jesus is the greater Solomon. He is the rightful heir of David's throne. Where Solomon failed and chased after the gods of his wives and didn't serve God with his whole heart, Jesus, the true descendant of David, the one that will reign on David's throne for eternity, is coming now into David's city as the rightful king who will love the Lord with all his heart and soul and might and love his neighbor as himself. The descendant of David, the rightful heir, is coming into his city. And you have all these people waving palms and blowing trumpets and laying their jackets out, making a big deal about the, the descendant of David that's coming. The second thing is that Matthew tells us that's incredibly significant is that not only is Jesus the rightful heir of David's throne, but he is the righteous deliverer of David's people and the people of God. Jesus is coming as the righteous king who is offering salvation. He is not coming into the city to destroy it as a conquering king. He is coming as a humble and peaceful uh, leader. He is not coming to offer terms of surrender to the city. He is coming to surrender himself. And that's why they don't understand. Their expectations of a king are completely different. They're, self, they're, they're fueled by selfish ambition and political activity, and they have yet to realize the significance because they can't see past their expectations and their desires. And then eventually, and prayerfully, and the disciples did this as well, and I believe it was John that says, and the disciples realized what happened, and the pieces fell together about Jesus and who he was and the reason he did that. Turn in your Bibles back to Zechariah chapter 9. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. Uh, it's on page 797 of your pew Bibles. It's what Scott read to us this morning. And we're going to settle in verses 9 and 10. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. These are joyous and happy and, and zealous times that you, there's reason to celebrate. These are not heavy and lamentful and full of grief like we've been looking in Habakkuk. These are full of joy and, and, and reasons to shout and make melody to the Lord. Why? Behold, your King is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. That's wonderful because they, they're languishing in with bad king after bad king. And the people have been sent into captivity and exile. And they have begun to sprinkle back into the land. But they are languishing. But they are called to rejoice because God is doing something that at the time they wouldn't believe. And then they saw the glory of Jesus. The light came on and said, holy cow, I can't believe I didn't see it. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nation and he shall rule from sea to sea. We immediately see the proper response to this proclamation is rejoicing and making much of this. That God is working in the midst for his people. And then we see the activity that God is doing is that he is bringing peace and he is not bringing peace by the power of the sword and, um, and by to strong arm the nations, but actually he is cutting those things off. He is getting rid of the accoutrements of war, the, the chariot and the war horse and the battle bow. They're not, in the kingdom of God, those are not a part of it. In Isaiah chapter 2, they said, the only thing that the, uh, the sword and the spirit will good for are pruning and gardening because the Lord has delivered his people. He has brought salvation. And you see the nature of the Savior who will do this act. Humble. You think of a king who comes in and conquers his people. They're braggadocious and powerful and unrelenting like the hand of Rome that would crush Jesus. But this king... This warrior who would bring peace and, and do away with the, the weapons of war because there's no use for him anymore is a humble king. And where is he seated? He's seated on a donkey, which is the symbol of the king coming into his city in peacetime. This is the great prophecy that Jesus is embracing. And as Jesus descends this hill, he is boldly declaring who he is and the nature of what he is doing. He is humbly bringing salvation and he is liberating the people of God as he has promised. And the disciples are excited about this. They're like, he's going into, he's finally doing and finally acting the way we think he should be. Because we think about when Jesus would do miracles before, what would he say to them? Don't tell anybody. Go to the priest, show yourself, but don't tell anybody what I did. And what would they do? They went and told everybody. When the crowds would follow Jesus, Jesus would go and he would slip off by himself. And the disciples said, Jesus, they're waiting for you. This is your big moment. And Jesus said, let's go to the next town and to preach the gospel because that's why I came. 
And so the disciples are getting kind of excited because Jesus is finally doing what they they'd expected him to. They wanted him to do. And so they begin to wave the palm branches and they lay their cloak in front of the donkey because Jesus is the great king. He is the one. And he's a king so worthy. They don't even want the animal that he's riding to have to touch the dirty ground. So they lay their jackets before him. And they, they waved the palm branches, and the palm branches were, were, grew in abundance in Judea, and they were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. And so as they, as they waved these palm branches, that was to show that the people were rising and they were going to be delivered from their captivity. Uh, very similar to Civil War, the Confederate flag. That was the rebel banner, and they said the Union's not coming after us, so they would fly their, the rebel flag. And the Jewish nationals of that time said, Rome, we're going to stick it to you, and they would fly the, the, the palm branches above them, and they declared, our king has come, our deliverer has come. They shouted, Hosanna, God save us. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. During Passover, you read through Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 each night, and it tells of how God has delivered his people in the past out of the bondage of Egypt. And then in Psalm 118, you settle in prayers, deliver us from our, uh, from our challenges and our bondage today. And it ends in the last five verses with a very rich messianic prayer that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they say, Hosanna, which means God save us. So as they're shouting and praising Jesus, this liberating king that's coming into their, 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 their city, they're finally, what Jesus is finally doing what they expected him to do. But the only problem is rather than a proud and braggadocious and powerful king, they didn't get what they want. They got a humble king. And that's not really, humble kings aren't good to deliver you and cause revolutions. Because they miss the significance of the king that was before them. The people longed for a king that would make them rich, but they got a humble king who declared that the poor in spirit would be blessed. They longed for a king who would bring them comfort by his power and his conquest. But Jesus, their humble king, said that those who mourn, would be comforted. They wanted a king who would crush the necks of his enemies. But Jesus declared that the meek would inherit the earth. The people longed for a king who would satisfy them with power and with wealth. But Jesus, their humble king, satisfied them with righteousness. The people wanted a king who would secure victory by any means necessary but Jesus blessed the pure in heart. The people longed for a king who would crush his enemies under his feet, and Jesus, their humble king, elevated the peacemakers. See, the nature of Christ's kingdom is wholly unlike the kingdoms of this world, which means that peace is not through power, but through sacrifice. Yet Jesus knew they did not understand. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but both Luke and Mark talk about Jesus as he is on that hill that leads down to Jerusalem. 
he looks over the city, the city of the king, and it says, when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept. This is while he's riding the donkey, while people are shouting and praising, Hosanna, Jesus weeps, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The people wanted peace. It's what they desperately craved. But they couldn't see that the source of peace, the only peace that will bring them lasting satisfaction, was right before their very eyes, and they were looking past Jesus for something else. They needed Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the triumphant entry should serve as a dire warning to us because just like those who laid their garments and they swayed the palm branches, our expectations can blind us to the reality of who Jesus is. Our preconceived notions and our blind spots, our desires and our, our political amb ambitions will poison us so that we can't see Jesus for who he is. We can only see Jesus for what we want to get out of him. When Jesus doesn't act like we want him to act or do what we want him to do or say what we want him to say, we go confused and we grow scared and we grow weary. Ocean Park, it is my prayer for my eyes and my heart and my ears and for yours as well that the Spirit of God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand Jesus for who he is, not what we want him to be. For unless the Spirit of God works, our cries for Hosanna will quickly turn to cries of crucify him. Because we must receive Jesus for who he is, not who we want him to be. And Jesus was the promised king. He was the humble king. I got to remember my points here. I apologize. And he was the disappointing king. And you say, well, that's not what I expected. Notice in verse 10 and 11, and when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. This, this group of Galileans that has, has started this journey down to Jerusalem, and they're getting bigger, and they're stirring the messianic impulses and passions of the people, and the Pharisees are clicking their tongues, and the other people are asking the question, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. As Jesus entered the city that was overflowing and stirred with people. For the people were remembering, anticipating the prayers of the people, the halal that they would pray for the deliverance of their, of their, from Egypt and desperately pleading with God to again deliver them from their oppressors of Rome. And the question began of this Galilean prophet who was coming down with this hubbub that was coming down with Galileans, these 
country Israelites and these country Jews that were making much of this Nazareth preacher, the question, what good can come from Nazareth? They began to ask their questions. Could this actually be the one? Could this be the one that comes to save us? Some of the crowds were likely beginning to get overwhelmed in excitement and they, they, they tapped their neighbor and said, this could be him. And they began to wave the palm branches and they joined in the joyful choruses of thanksgiving and they laid their jackets at the feet of this great king that was coming in. But as the camera pans, you also see, you take note that some people were scratching their chin and saying, and anything good come from Nazareth. This is just a Galilean prophet. And they begin to inquire and ask questions about him because they don't buy his, his credibility. He's not from here. He's from Nazareth. And then you see the, the Pharisees as they wring their hands and they worry that if this keeps going on, as John says, the whole world will go after him. If this keeps going on, Rome will come down and crush us and we'll have nowhere. And they were appalled at the political and the theological foolishness that this Galilean was causing in the great city of David. Yet all who watched Jesus enter the gates of Jerusalem that Sunday watched him die on a hill outside the gates on Friday. And they never connected Zechariah chapter 9 and Isaiah 53. The humble servant was a suffering servant to save his people from their sins. Surely he, the suffering servant, has bore our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We didn't even see the significance. We couldn't see it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes... We were healed. The people couldn't see. The victory had come. It, it, the king, the victorious king, had come into their city, but they were dissatisfied with the king because he is not what they wanted. Their expectations were a chariot, a war horse, and a battle bow, not a cross with a, a, a servant that was beaten beyond recognition and shamed and naked and dying. Wimp, they thought he was a wimp and they thought he was pathetic. But he was the victorious king who was accomplishing salvation in their midst. And all they said in verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus was a prophet. But their answer was inadequate because he was prophet, priest, and king. He was God himself, the word made flesh. He was the great king who was accomplishing salvation for them, and they couldn't see it. They only saw a great teacher who performed mighty deeds, and he was a potential revolutionary who might do the job to get them out of the bondage of Rome. 
But as we continue to read through Matthew chapter 21 over the course of this next week, we will see their fleeting hopes quickly dissipated when the iron fist of Caesar fell and crushed the king of the Jews who hung on that cross. The celebrated king was now dead and he was a very dissatisfying king to the Jews. The crowds failed to recognize the victory of Christ because their expectations blinded them to the victory of the cross. Peace was, would not be won by the shedding of the blood of the enemies, but Christ shedding his blood on behalf of his enemies. Peace was not won by the power or influence, was not won by power or influence, but Christ taking the penalty of sin on himself. Peace was not won by living your best life now or naming and claiming your reward or speaking it to existence or sowing some kind of silly seed like some spiritual 401k plan that would grow, but it was by being united to Christ in His death and robed in His righteous obedience that you could not do because the debt, weight of, de uh, the debt of your sin crushed you. The people could not see the king and he disappointed them. But like Paul Harvey says, we have the rest of the story. We keep reading. We read the account of the empty tomb. We watch as Thomas touches the nail-scarred hands. We hear Jesus commission his disciples and all authority has been given unto me. Why? Because I rose from the dead. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The question is, when we get to the end of Matthew, is do you have the courage to believe the suffering, dying king who is humble, coming into his city on a, craw on, on a donkey and laying his life down for his people? I ask you this morning, as Matthew asked you, who is Jesus? Is it the means to, for you to get what you want? Or is the king who laid his life down to deliver you from your sin what you needed? Is he the one who makes your dreams come true and gives you a bigger house, a prettier wife, a faster car, and a better job, and a better interest rate? Or is he the victorious king who bought brought deliverance from your worst nightmare, the unrelenting power of sin and death that held you captive. If you follow Jesus because he, you think that he will fix your marriage and fix your kids and find you a better job and heal your cancer and bring back warm memories of your childhood when things were good down at the old brown church, if you follow Jesus for all those things because you want to go to heaven and you want to be forgiven and you want to feel happy, those are all good things. But they're inadequate because they fail to recognize the significance of who Jesus is and what he has done. Your belief, if you follow Jesus for those reasons, for what you can get out of Jesus, good and bad, carnal and spiritual. Your belief will fade as quickly as the crowds because you don't think you need the salvation that only Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection can provide. You need what you can get out of him. 
And I promise you, God doesn't take lightly those who try to use him to get to something else, just like you don't like that for yourself. Jesus must be hailed as the victorious king who conquered sin and death, who laid his life down for his people to redeem them from their sin and present them holy to God that they might have fellowship with a God they could not come into his presence or he is nothing at all but an idol that we create in our own likeness. So what do we do? What is genuine belief in Jesus? Genuine belief is to recognize that my sin has eternal consequences and has separated me from God. I have traded the joy in the infinite, immortal God for, for uh, things that cannot satisfy me. And I justly deserve God's wrath and I will receive the punishment for my sin eternally. But at that same time, I don't wallow in that. I recognize my need and my worthlessness, but I recognize the promise of God who by the gospel and by my being united to Christ, I am given a worth because I belong to Jesus. And I have been united to him in his life and his death and his resurrection. It, I now have peace with God and I can sing and I can rejoice, O daughter of Zion, of Zion, for God has taken away your judgment against you and he has brought us into the great city of God and he has given us good things to enjoy. Christ, the victorious king, has brought me into a right relationship with God and I am free to serve my God and to serve my neighbor and to love and be loved. Therefore, I plead with you, I beg with you, I ask you each day to repent and believe of false hopes and ulterior motives that we bring to our, our King. To repent of using Jesus to get what you really want. Repent of living as if Christ doesn't matter and has no authority over your life. And each day when you wake from your sleep, say, Lord, thank you for another day. I am yours. Save me. The end of the story in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. The daughters of Zion and the sons of Zion will rejoice. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that, the multitude that no one could number, from every nation, every tribe, and people, and language, standing before the throne, before the lame, clothed with right robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I ask you, Ocean Park, who is this Jesus? We must receive Jesus for who he is. The humble, victorious king who has paid our debt and brought us into peace with God. Not who we want him to be.